I would have loved an article called Why is the Libs of TikTok Fueling Outrage Among the Right? But this article was called Meet the Woman Behind Libs of TikTok Secretly Fueling the Right's Outrage Machine. And if you ask me, this is like definitional doxing. If that is true, that this is one of the most important conservative activists in the country and, you know, being shared by Rogan, as I mentioned, appearing on Tucker Carlson anonymously, that to me is a journalistic question. Who is this person? Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Corey, I'm really excited about the stories today. Yeah, we got we got a hot one today. On today's show, South Carolina is set to execute a death row inmate by firing squad. We'll talk capital punishment in America. How many libraries do I have to donate before I can get my kid into Yale? Robbie here went to Yale Law School, so his kids will probably get in regardless of their LSAT score. We revisit the practice of universities showing a preference to kids of alumni. And we'll talk to a former school principal around here who may have some thoughts on the Biden administration's new rules for charter schools and their access to federal grants. But first things first, one of these days we'll launch that milquetoast centrist of TikTok page we've always dreamed of. But for now, the world has libs of TikTok, an aggregator account that gathers up clips it purports to represent left-wing America, LGBTQ America in particular, and drops them in our Twitter feed. Since last year, it's gained a huge amount of influence on the online world of right-wing politics, leading Washington Post's Taylor Lorenz to enter the chat. We'll get to her role in all this here in a second, but let's start by describing just what this page does. This is a tool I use to teach students about gender and sexuality. First up, we have sex assigned at birth. This is what the doctor says you are when you come out of the womb. Next up, we have gender identity, which is totally different from sex assigned at birth. This is what you feel you are inside, and no one can see this from the outside. Then we have gender expression, which is how you show your gender to the world. Then we jump down to attraction. We have physical attraction and emotional attraction. These are different. Hey, if your parents don't love and accept you for who you are this Christmas, fuck them. I'm your parents now. I'm proud of you. Drink some water. I love you. Bye. The second one, not that bad. Heavy commentary attached to it. Pretty much every video that they post comes with some type of headline that says, this is what the left is. This is what the left wants. This is what they want to do to children. It, it doesn't really seem to make any distinction between these extreme examples and the left in general. Yeah. Ricky, what do you think about it? Um, I don't know of examples and I could it could be just because I'm not like first in it where they say that this is everyone on the left and I do take issue with the libs of TikTok thing like I would have been okay if it was like leftists of TikTok or wokies of TikTok or something else because I don't think it's fair to say that all liberals think that way I think these are definitely fringe leftist ideas um, but these are also some of the most innocuous I would say of some of the things that they post like there's there's stuff about like defending pedophilia it's like really gross really fringe stuff and like I, liberals are defending no I, well I don't like liberals like i don't really know what that label is i don't yeah. none of these people are like self-identifying like this is my political context it's just like weird fringe stuff that's associated with the left that this person is like they have an email or like a dm sort of thing so they're just aggregating stuff that's already public and out there and some of it's really gross and then other stuff i think is kind of just like punching down and reposting weird tiktoks of like clearly disturbed people with kind of just strange things happening and I don't know like so I, I don't approve of all of it that's well, for well, sure one thing Corey that I think is interesting about this as I was reading up on it is that this isn't just any page it's been shared by Rogan the New York Post the Federalist Glenn, Glenn Greenwald Megan uh, Megan McCain Tucker Carlson, Tucker Carlson. Yeah. and my general feeling about these types of things is that obviously I think there's an example and this is not specific to any part of the political spectrum where there's a curation of anecdotes in a way that tries to 
to suggest that this is just what a whole swath of people believe. And I think this is a particularly effective use of saying, hey, these anecdotes are the left. And the way I treat it is, I don't, like I wanna see data, right? Yeah. Like I wanna see mm -hmm. polling data and I treat very differently data that says, here's a whole group of people, we've asked them, we've used some scientific analysis to say what your views, for instance, on gender identity are. By the way, they like what they said here, people, I know plenty of people who will defend that. And part of it is like, I don't want people to be defensive about these positions because these are actual positions that people are debating in the public square. And then I treat differently, like let's say a politician says something, they're yeah. representing a lot of people. So therefore I view, like anecdotes about them differently than like some person just randomly on TikTok, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's the easiest thing in the world to do to take the most extreme examples of something, you know, curated in a certain way to say that, oh, this is the example of everybody on that particular side. My biggest problem with this page is that it doesn't seem to actually care about children. If it was actually caring about children, then the focus would be these particular teachers or these particular educators are doing the wrong thing here. Instead, it tries to basically say that these people are representations or they're representative of liberals. They're representative of the Democratic Party. The goal here seems to be if you vote Republican, you will be able to stop these types of teachers and these types of people from being able to. Go. I would say that the majority of the tweets are actually pointing out specific teachers and the ages and what district it is. And like, yes, I have issues with some aspects of that. But I mean, I think that the this recent expose in the Washington Post about this account is making it sound like it's some sort of like Republican institution, whereas it it's, just, it's just this girl who made a Twitter a year ago that happened to blow up in recent months and all of a sudden is like in the spotlight. Like this is just an aggregator of public things. This is not, there's no think tank behind it. There's no politician well, no, behind that. it. But and so I just, I think to ascribe that it's, it's, it's pushing a Republican agenda like in such a deliberate way might not be completely fair, but it is certainly affecting it because people are seeing it. It's called libs of TikTok. It's asserting that everybody on this page is a liberal in representation of liberal thought. So I would I say think that it's, that's- I think it's asserting that there's a concerning fringe. And, I, and one of the things that's disappointing about the conversation that happened uh, following this Washington Post expose is that it was about who who is this girl? Who is this person behind this? And never at any point does it investigate, like, are there some genuinely weird things that they're pointing out about the fringes of of the left wing political world in America? Are, are there some legitimate things that are kind of strange that we should say, like, yes, we distance ourselves from these things, but we also don't agree with this type of kind of vigilante Twitter page or yeah. this or that. Like, there, there was not really any effort to address like yeah there's actually like maybe all these people who are looking at this page are not crazy like maybe there are some weird concerning things happening and like let's talk about that yeah i think like but i but i think and and sager from breaking points said something equivalent to this he said there's a real story about how libs of TikTok by simply posting videos became objectively one of the most important conservative activists in the entire country Taylor Lorenz, the journalist who wrote the story, refuses to engage with the actual content, why it resonates, and chooses to try and destroy her instead, meaning her being the person who created the page, which I know we'll get to. I'm, I agree with this in a sense, in, in, in that people should defend what they put on the internet. Uh, and that doesn't mean all liberals have to defend everything that's on no, here. Of because, not. you know, like I don't know enough about what's on this page. I suspect I probably disagree with a lot of it. The second video, as you mentioned, Corey, to me is like, there's not even much there. These you know? two specifically to me, like I'm not 
up in arms about. There right. was far more egregious stuff. And like an example of that would be the opening of this article in the Washington Post says, on March 8th, a Twitter account called Libs of TikTok posted a video of a woman teaching sex education to children in Kentucky, calling the woman in the video a predator. Next evening, the same clip was featured on Laura Ingram's Fox News program, which sounds super innocuous, sounds super unfair, but like it also hyperlinks to the tweet in Internet Archive where you can't watch the video and the video that they're linking to is is this which i think there's a legitimate conversation to be had about you know like get down with yourself explore your own body masturbation is really healthy and i recommend it to people of all ages all ages as soon as my nephews could talk they were doing that that's what they were doing kids touch themselves kids start to ask questions and we teach them the language for their bodies, right? That's your nose, touch your nose, show Aunt T, you can touch your nose. But my sister's not saying that when they're tugging at their penis, right? But it feels good, right? We have to learn ways to talk to young people about this so that they know how to explore their body consensually so that it's not in public. So this Wait. woman's running a sexy summer camp. Okay, give me and the like, details here. Just, Who is this woman? She's I, a teacher? She's, she's running this sexy summer okay. camp for kids. Like, okay. Like, and what, are we, what, kind of kids, what kind of kids are we talking children. about? Children. Children. Like, like, like 11th graders? Or are we no. talking about children? No, children. children. I mean, she said as soon as her nephews could talk, so I'm assuming <laughs> two-year-olds, three-year-olds. I think... Until we get to the point of the debate about who created the page, which I know is what we're about to talk about, to me, this is a legitimate debate, right? And to be clear about what I said about inserting commentary, totally fine to insert commentary. I just think that, like, I think the the sort of standard of scrutiny I bring to this page, just like not from a should it exist or not, but like whether I agree with the project or not, starts mm -hmm. to raise the more commentary that's inserted yeah. into it. Obviously, the curation in itself is a commentary. I think that's what we're talking about. What does it suggest? Is this all liberals? It's some liberals. I, in a way, as somebody who spends a lot of time in New York and has spent a, a lot of time in left-leaning circles, don't mind pages that curate what some would suggest are extreme views, but sometimes I think views and, and ways of going about things that are on the rise on the left, even if they're not representative of the full left. And so in some ways, not knowing the full story of this page, but knowing enough about the person who created it to know that I don't necessarily trust her motives. The idea of curating like things that are purported to be on the left to try to shine the spotlight on it, I'm not against that in theory. In practice, I might have some issues here. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's, baseline culture wars stuff that yeah. I find exhausting. I don't, some of the stuff I think is worth shining a light on. Other stuff I think is unfair. I'm not like totally all out defending this page, but like I think everyone is guilty of just getting into this outrage clicking sort of thing. And this is just somebody who's maximized that. We'll talk about the somebody here. So we talked about Taylor Lorenz, was it the last episode or the one last week we talked about yeah, this? Yeah. Point, yeah. So Taylor Lorenz, uh, people can go back, we'll, we'll link to it in the show notes, but it's the last episode, I believe. We uh, is a reporter, former reporter from the New York Times who covers social media beat and now is at the Washington Post. We talked a lot about the controversy surrounding her and the timing couldn't have been better because now she's the one who authored this article and Ricky, she's in the middle of another controversy here. Yes, so I think the controversy here is surrounding um, accusations of hypocrisy after she was talking about issues with online, online harassment and doxing and how that was targeted at her and she thinks that's inappropriate. And when she said that, a lot of people had gone back to like examples of her kind of doing similar things to people. And then this article came out soon after, which I would have loved an article called, why is the libs of TikTok fueling 
outrage among the right. But this article was called Meet the Woman Behind Libs of TikTok, Secretly Fueling the Right's Outrage Machine. And if you ask me, this is like definitional doxing. And I actually went back in the Wayback Machine on this article. And in the original article, they linked to her real estate license that had her address on it. Mm. So that's legitimately doxing. And if I were a Washington Post editor, I would absolutely have removed that link, which they did only after people freaked out about it. They also talked about her full name, her place of residence, her business, her religious affiliation. It just, I, yes, I think she has the right to do this. I'm not saying that we should like censor the article or whatever, but yes, I think it's hypocritical. And no, I don't see how that's productive. And his background, just to refresh our memory, uh, part of what makes this hypocritical to use those words is why? Just um, well, of- just recently on MSNBC, she, which I'm not like making fun of the fact that she's getting online harassed at all. Like, I think that's a huge problem. And a lot of people have experienced that. But she said, this is a quote from her just like last week. You feel like any little piece of information that gets out on you will be used to destroy your life. And this is essentially, I mean, even though I'm not defending this woman in her entirety, like there's some weird stuff in her past. That's essentially what happened here. And she did that exactly to another person who's running this like little anonymous twitter account in a big major news newspaper outlet not a little account well it's now doubled it's in size million. it's almost doubled in size since she published this article why ironically. do we assume that the person who created this account is guaranteed like to be anonymous why do why does i don't she i don't that? i don't think that she well she's gone through a lot of efforts to do that and i mm-hmm. just don't think it's a, was a productive use of this article and mm-hmm. it, it went straight past the conversation that I think we are having that was meaningful about why does this page now serve as like a kind of central uh, like aggregator for this right wing outrage, which think, is an important conversation. I just don't think it's an important conversation well, yeah, let me to say, who some, is this woman? So she, uh, Lorenz uh, recently said on a podcast, she said, uh, people are harassing my family members, stalking me, all that is incredibly terrifying and invasive. And that that is a point of hypocrisy you mentioned because um, she then knocked on the doors of, uh, purported to have knocked on the doors of family members of this woman who created the page. So there's a part of me that's like, okay, I think it is actually standard practice for journalists to confirm the identities of people who are, in my opinion, public figures. Like even mm-hmm. Sager called her one of the most important conservative activists in the entire country. When I think he's kind of sympathetic to this project, I would see, I would it would seem so. He's calling her that. So, if that is true, that this is one of the most important conservative activists in the country, and you know, being shared by Rogan, as I mentioned, Greenwald, Megan McCain, Tucker appearing on Tucker Carlson anonymously, that to me is a journalistic question. Who is this person? Like Banksy or something, right? Like and like trying to figure out who that person is. Important project. Now knocking on their doors, I also think it's fine. I've had reporters knock on my door in Nashville to try to get a comment out of me when I was trying to evade them on certain things. And I, you know, to me, I treated that as part of the sport. Now I wasn't anonymous, but I have run anonymous TikTok, uh, Twitter accounts before for political stuff. And good luck trying to figure, by the way, audience, which of those there are. Taylor off uh, on your trail. In and that. I always so knew you. that that's part of the game. If they find out who I am, then it's just part of the cat and mouse game of all of this. And she made a critical mistake here. If you're going to do this, don't register the domain of libs of TikTok under your name with your cell phone number linked to your real estate contact information. And then making that mistake, you deserve to be, I don't call it docs at that point. You are just revealed for creating this page. You don't have a right to anonymity, especially when you have a high profile like that and you want to go on Tucker Carlson. It's one thing if you're like, I have anxiety disorder and I can't appear in public. This is clearly not the case. Now, 
linking her address wrong. I'm glad they took that out. Yeah, I don't think she has a guarantee of anonymity. I just don't feel that it's productive journalism. And I think that the source is rather unfortunate. Can I poke fun at something else here, by the way? So Tim Lorenz in this article says, traceable through a complex online history which was the registration of the domain. So like part of like <laughs> Taylor Lorenz here is like, I think overselling her journalism here a little bit too. So nobody comes out looking great in this story, in my opinion. Never mind like the background of this person. You could read the article, we'll link to it. Like not somebody I trust, like trafficking and tons of conspiracy theories previously publicly under her actual name. Mm -hmm. So this is a person who I do not trust, right? To me, it's like one thing if it's, Sager or David French or somebody or you, Ricky, like highlighting the absurdities of liberals. We do it plenty of times on this, like the excesses of liberals that sometimes move beyond the extremes and are actually representative of the views of too many liberals. That's cool. But but in the end, like, I don't I don't really like anybody involved in this story. Well, we'll just have to um, keep an eye out on what the legacy of this page will end up being. <laughs> Speaking of legacies, let's face it. We all have a friend out there who got a job they were unqualified for. Maybe they got out of trouble because they knew somebody important, or maybe they got accepted to a college because their mommy or daddy went there too. And if you don't know someone like this, it's probably because that friend is you. Nepotism in the United States is as ubiquitous as the air we breathe. And possibly nowhere is it more apparent than legacy admissions at U.S. colleges. Over the past century, universities have given special preference to children of alumni, but calls to ban that practice have grown louder in recent years, causing many elite schools to end their once sacred tradition. Now, Ravi, I know you're all for, you know, rich kids getting opportunities they don't deserve. So uh, where do you stand on the legacy of missions? I'm definitely not for that, by the way. And I, uh, I'm for eviscerating all versions of this. Yeah. And so I think a lot of us have seen the Netflix uh, docu-series or documentary on um, the college admissions scandal. Basically what happened there was parents who were like rich, but not like rich library name rich, <laughs> were in this kind of weird middle ground where they couldn't pay enough to guarantee their kids admission like a, like a good old billionaire would do. But they had enough resources to game the system. And what they did was they would concoct like, like my kid is like a, like a star lacrosse player or whatever. And they, yeah, they had a lot all of rowers. This, yeah. The rowers and stuff rowers. like this, which by the way is why we need standardized tests because all this bullshit qualitative stuff about like, I was like the captain of my debate team or whatever. Who gives a shit about that? Like, like, are you smart? That's what I want to know. Good um, question. You know, like all this other stuff can be gamed by rich families. Those people went to jail. Okay, who did that stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, the people who are not going to jail, as Richard Rees points out in this article in The Atlantic, called this article called The Shame Deficit, the people who are not going to jail, it's, it's corruption in plain sight in the United States, is legacy admissions in the U.S., which is kind of a uniquely American problem. I'm sure there are other issues around the world that are similar to this, but he's a Brit who points out that the U.S., which has this kind of Tocquevillian egalitarian spirit in so many different ways, has a bafflingly entrenched nepotism problem that is most shameful within our university systems and our K-12 system, where people can basically buy their way into the right schools and entrench their family uh, histories. And I find it wrong in that. And I'll go over some of the stats in a bit. It's, it's pretty damning. There's some interesting statistics from Harvard where 
their acceptance rate from 2014 to 2019 was 6% overall, which is insane. And that means that very qualified candidates are being denied for sure. Um, Not that they should accept everyone that's qualified, but the legacy acceptance rate was 33% for that point in time. And it's an equivalent to a 160 point SAT boost, which is incredible. Yeah, to add to that, Harvard's class of 2022, only 63% had no relatives who previously went to That's Harvard. That's Only 63%. Three out of four of the top 100 universities employ legacy admissions. And Stanford, which is like one of the worst offenders on this, this was their quote about this when asked about Amherst who admirably pulled back on their legacy admissions. They said this. They said, we consider legacy status as one factor in a holistic review of all the achievements and attributes presented by each applicant. So... They're basically putting legacy next to achievements, basically. They're mixing it with achievements. And this gets to my point. Like, I want actual achievements. I want things I could look on a a piece of paper and say, you objectively did this thing, and I can objectively say you're going to do it again. They're commingling these things and doubling down. And to me, this is just, this is entrenched corruption within the American university system. And there's a history of it. Like, there's a history of people being able to use this to game the system, to be able to get into these colleges that, like you said, are very difficult to get into. We had a former president, John F. Kennedy, who said this when he, in 1935, was applying to Harvard, gave his reasons for why he wanted to go to Harvard. He said, I would like to go to the same college as my father. To be a Harvard man is an ev- <laughs> to be a Harvard man is an enviable distinction and one that I sincerely hope I shall attain. So you got better over time in that impression. Yeah, I did. It started out rough. It started out rough. You got to get like the Mayor Quimby from The Simpsons. You got to get into it. But yeah, (laughs) audience, I got better over time. I I promise the audience, we're not taping this on 420. There's just something in the water today here. No, I agree. And actually, Reeves uh, in this article says the following. He connects it. He says it's not just about the university system, but he says, few feel any shame in sending their children to expensive private K-12 schools or providing internship opportunities to friends and family. So he extends it beyond to say, this is a K-12 problem and it's a problem in employment. And there was a quote from somebody named Matt Silva on Twitter that I think puts this eloquently. He says, opportunity hoarding is a toxic cultural element nearly universal among the American upper middle class, even by self-professed liberals. We see it in legacy admissions, unpaid internships, and exclusionary zoning. It must be exercised from our culture. And I, I, I like the connection because it's not just about the universities. It's about like basically every aspect of education in this country. I don't agree with just outlawing it across the board. I, I think that private universities should be able to do that if they so choose. What do you think but about this proposal to, to get rid of the federal, the federal funding? funding. Yeah. Exactly. That I think is completely reasonable. And, you know, at first I thought, well, a lot of these schools probably aren't getting federal funding. But Harvard, with their endowment in the literal billions, has taken uh, $976 million in federal grants, which is just kind of feels like it shouldn't even be happening to be honest um so i'm all down for like tying those grants to a policy where a legacy is not a factor in admissions right yeah and i think like i i think in this case and, and what we're referring to is jamal bowman among others introduced legislation to ban the use of federal funds for institutions that practice practice legacy admissions and this has been uh mimicked at the state level new york state has a similar uh bill for example so there is some momentum here to change this practice. I think the Kennedy impression wasn't that bad. I mean, no, no, it was good. I'm saying it was better with time. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think like the, the pauses made it better in my opinion. Yes, well, yeah. yeah, there's a certain cadence to it. Yeah. 
Well, guys, let's ease our way into a much lighter topic now, the death penalty. Seriously, though, South Carolina is planning to execute a death row inmate by firing squad. It was set to happen next week, but the state Supreme Court there is pushing that timeline back for the time being. Still, the whole concept of this execution by firing squad in 2022 just adds a whole nother layer to the ever thorny debate over capital punishment. Ricky, I know you're of the libertarian persuasion. Where do you come down just generally on capital punishment? Yeah, so, well, this case specifically, Richard Bernard Moore um, was con convicted of killing a convenience store clerk in 1999, and he chose the firing squad over mm -hmm. the electric chair, but is making the argument that both of them are unconstitutional. And in my mind, I think there are absolutely heinous enough crimes that people deserve to die for, but I absolutely do not trust the state or the level of proof. Like the burden of proof is just so high that I absolutely do not trust the state to convict someone and sentence them to death. And one exoneration is too many, but there have been 185 since 1973. And certainly there were people who weren't exonerated that were innocent. So I'm, I'm completely against it. Yeah, I think that there are like three goals of our criminal justice system, and I think people don't separate them enough. You have uh, deterrence, like we want to stop people from committing terrible crimes. You have rehabilitation. You want to say, all right, we want to get to the point where we like fix whatever the issue is and send people back into society so that they don't do that crime again. And then you have retribution, which is the most controversial of the three. And I think that's mostly the thing that's at work with the death penalty, because you can incapacitate somebody pretty easily by just putting them in prison for the rest of their lives. They will not commit that crime again, putting aside the whole discussion of how unsafe our prisons are generally. But when you're at that level, you're usually in segregation. I would say also deterrence, this is murky too, because prisons are so horrible that I'm not sure like saying you're gonna kill somebody who's pro probably met, like has some kind of massive instability or sociopathic tendencies is gonna be deterred by death by firing squad versus going to a, you know, a prison that has rampant rape and abuse for the rest of their lives, right? Like, and where you lose your freedom. Like, so for me, this is about retribution. It's like the scratching this itch as a society to say, you have committed a crime that's so bad that we must, like, we, it's about us more than it is about that person. And for those reasons, I think this is not where we should be in public policy. It's just not a good enough rationale to me. I think the biggest I think the biggest problem with it is there really is no humane way that we've come up with so far to be able to execute someone. Um, right. I mean, lethal injection was supposed to solve this problem and it hasn't. There's a lot of data to suggest that lethal injection is not a humane way to kill a person, that they you know, that there are a lot of horrible things that happen to a person as they're getting uh, injected with these different chemicals that they've used for that. You've had like in this in the South Carolina case, this person had to choose between firing squad and electric chair. I mean, I don't think I would I'd have a hard time choosing between those two because they're both they both sound awful. I mean, it almost seems like and this might sound a little bit uh, a little glib, but it also it almost seems like if you went back to like the older methods of just like like I mean, guillotine was probably the most, you know, quickest. You know, method. yeah, but I, maybe we should just stop killing people. And I think like for me, it's not <laughs> like a for me, it's not a. It, there is a principled manner of it, which I, I in some ways just described, but then there's a, the practicality of it, right? Equal Justice USA says it's 10 times more expensive to try a death penalty case than a non-death penalty case. And there's this guy, um, this former district attorney named Sterling Godspeed, who says, I think I could prove to you that I could put someone in the Waldorf Hotel for 60 to 70 years and feed them three meals a day cheaper than we can litigate a single death penalty case. So you have the cost of the death penalty, and then you have these enormous numbers of people who were basically sending a lot of people to death row, 
We're not executing a lot of them. And we've exonerated since 1976, which is when the Supreme Court handed down a, a really critical case, the Gregg case, uh, basically allowing the death penalty to uh, move from this moratorium, which was only a few-year moratorium. Since 1976, we have exonerated over 100 people on death row, never mind the people who've gotten lesser sentences, which is a huge percentage of the number. And we're not executing a lot of these people. Not that I view execution as a success, but it's just not an efficient process of delivering justice, and it's super expensive. There's one town. So sometimes this, this burden goes down on towns and counties because they are it's so much of the cost isn't in the incarceration part of mm -hmm. it. It's about how expensive it is to try these cases. And in Jasper County, Texas, for example, they had to raise uh, property taxes by nearly 7% to pay for one single death penalty cases. And there are two capital cases for force one county, uh, Jefferson County, Florida, to freeze employee raises and slash the library budget. This is a stupid use of public funds. Well, it just sounds like the, the, the lawyers and the courts involved in these cases are, are making it a little bit more complicated than it has to be. Obviously, it should be complicated. I mean, you talk about somebody's life here. But I mean, that's, like you said, the cost is more in, in the trying of the cases. If you simplify it that a little bit, then you'd bring that cost down. I mean, ultimately, but I then one, one thing is like, how do you simplify it? If you Because I think part of what, what the, the costs are is mm -hmm. that they want to be really sure. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, so there's more forensic evidence, for mm -hmm. example, things like that. And so I think a lot of people think it's the appeals. That's what they have in their head. And, like, yeah. and for sure, like the appeals of death penalty cases are very involved uh, and they and often involves like clemency with the governor and all this complicated, but there's so much before it even gets to that point wrapped up in the costs. And to me, this is a libertarian argument. I don't, I'm, I, I'm a shade of libertarian and I don't trust the government to do a lot of things. One of which is to give a permanent decision on most people's guilt. So it's one thing if it's Jeffrey Dahmer, but in a lot of these cases, it's way murkier than that. And I don't trust the government to make that determination in an absolute sense. Yeah, and all the data surrounding whether or not it's an effective deterrent is really shaky. Um, yeah. If you break it down by region where um, the places, the South is where there are the most executions mm -hmm. and also where it's the highest murder per capita. And that tends to be exactly the opposite in the Northeast where there's almost none, no executions taking place and the murder rate is much lower relatively. And I mean, I also think, is it not an adequate punishment to spend the rest of your life in prison? I I just, I, I feel like honestly, that seems in some regards like a worse, worse. fate than yeah. just kind of, I think it depends on the person and depends on the prison. Yeah. Uh, but I, but no, but, I totally agree. But also too, to your, to your point about the fact that murders are higher in the South, whether it's a death penalty versus the Northeast. I mean, not sure which one is influencing the other, you know, like it could just be that people murder more in the South. So they get the death penalty more, but it's know? clearly not deterring people from continuing to do so. No, probably because like, like some of this data saying that so many people, they end up on death row, end up not being on death row after a while through the appeals process. Ultimately, I, I totally agree with you guys about the government's role here. I don't trust the government to dole out this type of punishment. Also, the death penalty has a history of being disproportionately used and unfairly used towards African-Americans. And, and it's Spanish. growing. That disparity is growing. Yes. Yeah. So here's some data on that. Since that case I mentioned 1976, people of color, this is Texas, people of color made up 51% of those sentenced to death in the first decade after the decision. So like 76 to 86. That percent percentage has grown to 75% in the past 10 years. So 51% to 75% people of color. California, it's 52% to 78%. Florida, 40% to 52%. This trend is heading in the wrong direction. And I think the public is picking up on this. So if you look at the polling data on this Gallup, uh, has been measuring public sentiment towards the death penalty. I remember the 90s where it seemed like 
everybody Everyone. was for the death penalty. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the 88 election, for example, Dukakis was famously asked whether he would seek the death penalty if somebody, I think, either murdered his wife or something like that and was a famously viewed as a flub or whatever. I mean, what he should have said was, I shouldn't be on the jury in that case. But uh, there was this Gallup poll, they updated the data showing there's a 54-43 split now, 54 in favor of the death penalty, 43 against it. That may, You may think, oh, well, the public supports death penalty, but that's that is down from 8016. Wow. So 80% of the American public used to support the death penalty. Now it's 54. Mm -hmm. I would imagine these numbers are going to cross very soon uh, where the public is against it. And it's not just liberals now switching. Like if you look at the polling, yes, conservatives are more likely to support the death penalty, but you're seeing more and more uh, conservative leaders uh, around the country rescinding uh, death penalty statutes, Wyoming being an example of this, where there's movement there. And I think to me, that's a good sign. Yeah. yeah, and eight in 10 Americans also see the risk of innocent executions, which is a huge percentage. And that obviously is the most concerning part of all of this. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the death penalty is used, especially in my home state of Alabama, it's used so many times for people who are just accused of killing one person. The evidence isn't really all the way there. And I definitely think that that's a, a, a very terrible use of it. But I mean, I, I want to end this by asking just a very critical question. I mean, if we don't have the death penalty, then what do we do with the most heinous offenders in our society, people who harm children, serial killers, people who go on mass shootings. How do we look the families of those victims of their crimes in the eye and say, uh, you know what, we're just gonna put your, you know, this mass shooter, the serial killer in, in prison and they're gonna have three square meals for the rest of their life at your expense. Yeah, well, I think, but either way, it's gonna be at our expense. So yeah. like actually, so number one, what I would say to them is we cannot undo the act. That's no true. matter what we do, we cannot, we cannot bring anything to bear that's commensurate with the grief. And so I think the question is, how do we prevent this person from ever doing it again, which is the most important thing, and send a signal to future people not to commit that crime? And to me, I'm not. I'm hard pressed to think of the mass shooter who's making the distinction between death by firing squad, which, by the way, a lot of those people are probably not afraid to die, right? Yeah. Or like life in a prison, which. To me, a lot of these prisons violate the Eighth Amendment. There's like, you're probably at 100% risk of rape in a lot of these prisons, right? And they're horrible places. A lot of these people go to segregation units. And that's like, to me, I'm just speaking for myself here. And I imagine a lot of people feel this way. I would be more deterred to commit a crime if I knew that was my fate. Like rape and segregation and or segregation. Usually it's probably a choice between the two for the rest of my life. I'd rather you shoot me in the head. Well, it sounds like, Robert, you consider the death penalty almost too ethical for, for some of these people. And that's a good argument to be made. On to the education beat. School choice has been front and center. And the debate over choosing to attend a charter school has never been more contentious. New regulations proposed by the Department of Education seriously limit how charter schools can access federal funding. Activists for these schools say the Biden administration is effectively trying to kill new charter schools through bureaucratic red tape. But the administration says it needs to weed out nefarious spending and protect money that could fund regular public schools. Uh, Ravi, for some strange reason, I get the feeling you might have some strong opinions about this. Yeah, for, for people who are new to the podcast, I was a uh, charter school principal for a few years, and then I was a superintendent of a network of charter schools that I founded. It was a network called Republic Schools, and we had schools in Tennessee, in Nashville, and then we started Mississippi's first charter school, and now we have a few charter schools there. I'll just start by saying what a charter school is, because I think people might not know, right? Mm -hmm. 90 
plus percent or about 90% of charter schools in this country are nonprofit institutions that are run independent of school districts. And there are 3.5 million students in charter schools right now and about 7,500 charter schools. Basically, the deal for a charter school is, you, and actually it was Al Shanker, who was a former union leader who decades ago was basically the proponent of this idea because he felt like if you can give schools more flexibility, but in exchange for that flexibility, give them more accountability, great things can happen. Now, the unions have shifted their stance on this, which we'll talk about, I'm sure. But basically, that's the deal. So basically, if, and, and, and there are different ways you could give a school a charter. In Nashville, I had to propose it to the school board, the local school board. And in, in Mississippi, I had, to, I had to get it from the state. And those are two very common ways one can get a charter. And you have to basically argue in most places. Here, here's why we think we can run a great school. Here's the community support for it, yada, yada, yada. Here's our track record, why we can do it. There are a small sliver of states, I would say Michigan, Arizona, Florida, that are laissez-faire. They let too many charter schools exist. And a lot of times they do online, private charter schools that are not well-regulated. They're giving these schools and public dollars to people who don't deserve it. But those are the minority of those schools. And I know we'll come back to that. But the debate here is about the federal role in charter schools. And Congress has authorized the Department of Education now going back you know, for a long time now, like 20 plus years, to give out money called the Charter School Program Grant. And that money is now set to be four, $440 million in 2023. And this is the primary mechanisms that even allow charter schools to get started and grow. About half of charter schools in this country have received those funds. And you know, our schools, for example, received in, in just one grant, we received $9.5 million in a competitive grant for the CSP, not to mention money that the state of Tennessee gets from that grant as well that they pass on to us. So this is a really important grant. These regulations, and I'll go through them in detail, are basically a backdoor way for the Biden administration. And Biden has said on the campaign trail, I'm not a charter fan. This is a backdoor way for them to strangle those funds and limit the growth of charter schools. And that's very concerning to me. Why do liberals hate charter schools so much? Well, okay. So uh, to me, I think liberals, well, not all liberals hate charter schools. Not all, but and so, it seems to be, the progressives seem to have a, a beef with it. Yeah, so, you know, we looked at this data the other day from uh, murmuration that showed that actually young liberals are actually supportive of school choice. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at black and Latino uh, Democrats or just black and Latino voters generally, they're way more supportive of charter schools. Why? Because they send their kids to the schools. So of that, the half of those charters that receive the federal CSP uh, money, 33.9% are Hispanic and 30.5% are black. That's actually two times the number of black students attending those schools than traditional public schools. So black and brown families are taking advantage of these schools, which is why when you think about the Democrats who are pro-charter, who are they? They're Cory Booker, they're Eric Adams, right? They're Barack Obama, right? Who's against charter schools? It's Elizabeth Warren, right? Bernie Sanders, people like that. Now there are definitely Democrats of color, AOC being one of them, who are opposed to charter schools. But maybe we'll just get to this now before we get to the CSP grant stuff, because I'll get, I'll get back around to it. But let's talk about this hypocrisy before we get back to the data. Now, one thing that's going on here is, and I'll go through these provisions, the people who are pushing these provisions aren't being honest about them. Mm -hmm. And this is a long trend among progressives, usually the affluent progressives who move to the right neighborhood and exercise school choice in their own ways through property values or sending their kids to private schools or magnet schools, et cetera. They don't call that school choice. They call charters school choice because they don't send their kids to charters. And they will obfuscate this contradiction in every way possible. We talked about Elizabeth Warren 
she wrote a book in 2004 before she really became prominent uh, as a public figure and elected official called The Two Income Trap, Why Middle Class Parents Are Going Broke. And she went even further than charters and was advocating for vouchers in that book, giving an eloquent defense of that policy saying, look, like parents can't wait. You know, we need to give them options and we need to loosen up the system so that there's more innovation and parents can cross district lines and go mm -hmm, to schools that mm -hmm. they want. She then backtracked. Who knows exactly why she backtracked, but she did, as of 2019, receive $70,000 70, from teachers' unions and $2.5 million from the ed education industry as a whole. So she is the person who's, you know, often critical of the, the you know, special interest influence in Washington herself appears to be, in my opinion, captivated by the special interests, and she opposed the expansion of charter schools in Massachusetts, which is one of the highest performing charter school markets in the country, where they're nonprofit public school institutions. And then because of this, there's Sarah Carpenter, who's an amazing woman from Memphis, who I've had the chance to meet, confronted Elizabeth Warren on the campaign trail in 2019, when Elizabeth Warren was running for president. And uh, Sarah Carpenter is a huge advocate for charter schools in Memphis, which if you know anything about that school system, they need a lot of help. She was pressing Elizabeth Warren about why Elizabeth Warren sent her kid to a private school, but yet opposes school choice for black and brown families. This, let's roll this clip. You make your kids because I read that your children went to private school. Want public school. But so just for our listeners there, Sarah says, you sent your kid to a private school. Elizabeth Warren is like, no, I sent my kids to public school. You want to guess what the real story here is? Please tell me. She lied. <laughs> so she's trying to make Sarah Carpenter look dumb. And now this isn't the first time Elizabeth Warren has lied. Uh, she, within 24 hours, clarified that her son indeed went to private school, not just for a year, but for like, I think part of middle school and the entirety of his high school. Oh, wow. So and this is just a long line of hypocrisy here. Uh, AOC was caught on video, I think, by your institution, the Washington Post, bragging about how she sent in New York goddaughter. In, oh, sorry, the New York Post, bragging about how she sent her goddaughter to a charter school, even though she opposes charter schools. This is common amongst these people. It's choice for me, but not for thee. And it's baffling and it's infuriating. Yeah, and to move on to this specific proposal from Biden, I'll just kick it off with one issue that I definitely have with it, which is that you need to prove that there's an unmet demand in a specific district, which means that you need to show that these schools, the public schools are over-enrolled there. And while, yes, I think that unmet demands are a great reason to start a charter school, I don't think that does anything for the kids in failing districts or struggling districts that are underperforming because just because there's enough spots, but there's still failing students doesn't mean that they don't deserve a different option. And so that's a lot of people seem to agree because they have allowed only a 35 day comment period and already 15,000 complaints have been filed. Wow. Yeah. And this, this unmet demand thing is super nefarious because you're seeing declining enrollment across the public school system yeah. during the pandemic. And, and this is true of a lot of places. So I mentioned Elias, my former student, the d enrollment in North Nashville, which is where we put our first school, had been declining for a while. There's a lot of under-enrolled schools, and those schools were terrible. Like the zone public school he was going to go to had a less than 1% uh, of their student body getting college-ready ACT at that point. Oh, wow. Now, this wouldn't meet the unmet demand standard, though, because the enrollment, they're not capped yeah. schools, right? They're not full schools, and they're not full for a reason, and that's why they need other options in that district. And so I find that problematic. But Ricky, I know there's more to this, right? Well, even though I'm a school choice proponent, I'm going to steal man the other side here. Um, and one interesting statistic that 
does prove Biden's point that there is some spending that's not effective is that uh, between 2006 and 2014, 35% of schools that the government funded, charter schools, never opened or shut down. And 537 ghost schools received $45.5 million. So that's obviously a problem. And how do we address this while not hampering legitimate and potentially successful efforts at the same time. Yeah, to me, there's a couple of issues with that data. Like number one is so many of those schools are in Michigan. I think Michigan accounts for most of those mm. schools or is the state that is most represented in that data. I think two is they call things waste that aren't necessarily waste. So for example, we received $9.5 million from the federal government to expand. And we said, I'm going to make this up. We were going to start 10 schools. We may have started six. Now you could say that's okay. ghost schools. But we would say that's still money going to a public institution that's performing really well. Like in their own report on the CSP in 2019, they cited Republic, which is my school network, among the top 10 most successful uh, at reading growth and math growth of any of the recipients of public funds that they received. So that is a, is a success. And it would be one thing if charters were receiving more money. Then you say, well, this is waste. Like if you don't start those extra schools that you say you're starting, then this is some kind of grift. But the Cato Institute looked at this and showed that charters are receiving, and this was definitely my experience where I started schools, much less money than traditional district counterparts. They examined in 2018, 18 cities, charters received 7,796 less per student than traditional schools, a 33% disparity. In New York, it was over $6,000. In Atlanta, Little Rock, Washington, Chicago was $10,000 per student. And like Little Rock, not $10,000 is a lot of a difference there. Um, and a common critique from, from people who oppose charter schools is, well, you get philanthropy, but they looked at that and they said that once you account for philanthropy, it uh, the gap increases. It doesn't decrease. Um, so when you when you account for philanthropy, it now it adds fourteen hundred dollars to that gap. So we're talking about schools that were already underfunded, and they're calling that waste. The last thing I would say is what in here is actually stopping waste? I'm all for stopping waste, but I don't know exactly what in this proposal is doing that. Like one other controversial provision here is uh, a preference for applicants who must propose to collaborate with at least one traditional public school or traditional school district. And they have to provide a letter or, you know, they will get bonus points for providing a letter for each participating public school. Now, people uh, who are, you know, supportive of these restrictions will say, oh, these are just preferences and guidelines. But as Jared Polis pointed out, who's the governor of Colorado, in a letter opposing these changes, these guidelines are basically requirements because what happens is they set these guidelines and then they give anonymous reviewers the ability to score these applications, which have huge implications on the existence of these schools. And so they're saying, oh, you haven't um, you haven't collaborated with a traditional public school. Like that is probably going to sink your application, especially as you go down this list. Right. And. And to me, this is a problem because it gives that traditional school down the street, which is often your competitors, often you know is captive to the teachers' unions and interests that don't want to see these charter schools, a veto over whether you get a school. I've had traditional public schools I've collaborated with, but then there are districts like the Jackson Public School District that didn't want anything to do with us because they knew what we meant for their future. We knew that every kid that went to their schools was an indictment and how they've been failing schools. And I, I don't want to hand them a veto. My biggest question is, it sounds like the one of the biggest things that's going against charter schools in America is the teacher unions. What is the relationship between the teacher unions and charter schools? So uh, you, charters can be unionized and some of them are unionized. The r track record of unionized charter schools is really bad. Like the union actually started their own charter school in New York and had to shut down because it was so poorly performing. They don't like charters generally because charters like mine generally don't have unions. 
unions because part of the what we want is the flexibility, right? And if you look at the hundreds-page union contract, for, in, for instance, in New York, it says how long the school day is going to be, how much feedback you can give to a teacher. It limits the, the autonomy of a principal in ways that would, we would never tolerate in any other profession. Mm-hmm. And so charter school leaders understand when they're like, no, like we don't want that. Right. And to me, so that's why they hate these. You know, there's there's another critique that's often lobbed at charters, which is embedded within this data, which is people often accuse charter schools of one of two things. And it's kind of a catch twenty two. They often accuse you of creaming students, meaning you're 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 taking the most motivated parents and putting them into charters, or they say that you're segregating schools and meaning like your schools are are, you know, entirely black and brown and therefore uh, you're contributing to segregation. Now, these are almost a catch-22 because this is what I dealt with. Most of my schools were almost 100% African-American. People couldn't really credibly accuse us of creaming because the average student who entered our schools were dramatically underperforming the school district. We had higher special education uh, numbers, higher uh, economically disadvantaged, higher students of color. So then they would say, well, then you're contributing to a segregation. And this is in this proposal. They're basically saying, um, you in, and this, once again, it's framed as a guideline, but that you don't, they, a big, a, a a, um, a standard in this is that you don't hamper, delay, or in any way negatively affect any desegregation ever- efforts in public school districts, which on the face of it seems great, but they're taking aim at schools like ours where it's black and brown families who are in segregated neighborhoods, right? I wasn't going to open up a charter school in the suburb. It's just not what our mission was, right? So this is a problem. I could go down many other provisions of this. It's worth mentioning that charters dramatically outperform traditional public schools in urban school districts in America. Stanford, which is um, the gold standard on this, even charter school opponents pre-2015 used to cite this uh, Stanford research arm called Credo as their gold standard because it had previously shown like kind of wishy-washy data on charters. But as of 2015, they kind of settled this debate. And this is urban charter schools across America. It says students enrolled in urban public charter schools gained 40 additional days of learning in math and 28 additional days in reading compared to the traditional public school peers. And when you aggregate this, so it's four or more years of enrollment in an urban public charter school, it's the equivalent of 108 additional learning days in math and 72 days in reading. Not actual days in the school, but like the equivalent of having that many more days of learning. So these things are really working and that's why a lot of black and brown families support them. Interesting stuff. Well, we thank you all for watching and listening to us today. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube page. And if you're listening to the podcast, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. We will see you guys next time.